moral money. Can morality and money ever go together? Can we do good and make a profit at the same time? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Investment at Joe Hambro Capital Management and Regnum. My guest today is Dr. Judith Rodan, a distinguished research psychologist, the first woman to lead an Ivy League university, the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Judith was president of the Rockefeller Foundation, where she is credited with co coining the phrase impact investing. She has written several books, including The Resilience Dividend, Making Money Moral, and The Power of Impact Investing. Judith, welcome to Organizing the Future. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you very much for having me. Well, you don't know how giddy I am with me yeah, meeting you again and talking to you, because I, I owe quite a lot to you um, and to the work you did at the Rockefeller Foundation. It was a very important piece of thinking that sort of shaped, actually, my career over the last uh, eight, eight years or so, because I was once asked to look into impact investing, which I had no clue about. I was a very traditional investor. I knew about the, the acronym ESG. That's environmental, social, and governance, for those who don't know it. Uh, but going to talking about impact investing and investigating what the Rockefeller Foundation did back in 2007, where you coined the phrase, was I found just inspirational reading your book as well about how impact investing and uh, yeah, impact and making money could come come together in a in a constructive and productive way was very important and so thank you it helped shape one of our products here our impact solutions and also i found it has introduced me to a whole new world a whole new world of great social entrepreneur entrepreneurs people doing great causes where they were doing concession return returns people who took taking philanthropy to the next stage. So yeah, it was just a, a great experience. So you can see why I'm so excited Thank to have you. you here today. So for those who don't know it, maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, what impact investing actually is and, and what you were trying to do at the Rockefeller back Foundation back in 2007. Thank you, Andrew. I, I, it's really a wonderful journey because I, it might have evolved only from what philanthropic capital could initially do. It was clear to us as we started to look at what huge problems there still were in the world and the very significant goals that everyone, whether it was governments or the pri private sector or civil society had for trying to reduce those problems and, and ultimately to solve them, we, we understood that we could not do that with the capital available only in governments and in philanthropy, at least in development aid and philanthropy. And we saw that unless we found a way to unlock the capital markets, that is private investments and private companies, public companies, where all the capital was in the trillions rather than the billions that foundations and governments had, that these problems weren't going to be solved. And we hosted a conference in 2007 with investors and entrepreneurs where the term impact investing was coined because we came to understand that the markets were ready 
for products, and indeed the companies were ready to become those goods and services where you could yield both a financial return and uh, an environmental or social concern at return. And it was to move out of concessionary finance, actually, or patient capital, which had been the terms used before and scared many investors away, candidly. Um, this was really to say that the field could be developed in ways that would yield very significant financial returns, depending on which asset class the investment was in, um, and also do good for the environment and society more generally. Remember that this was a time when people were starting to question capitalism, at least the Milton Friedman model of capitalism, that it was only about shareholder returns or shareholder value. And we started to see the increase of both conscious consumerism, where people only wanted to buy products, or many people were ready to only buy products where they felt they were doing no harm and potentially could do good, where employees increasingly said they didn't want to work for companies that were hiding, uh, harming the environment in some way or another. So our goal in those early days was really to help shape those little green shoots everywhere that they were rising in, into an ecosystem by funding with about $75 million of philanthropic capital all of the infrastructure that others weren't ready to invest in, whether that was developing new metrics um, for social impact. Investors would tell us, I know how to do the financial due diligence, but I don't have a clue on how to do and measure um, in the social diligence process what the real social impact could be. And we developed platforms because nobody wanted to invest in their own fund initially enough money. They didn't think that they would make that many investments. We did a lot of policy work trying to understand how pension fund requirements could jump into this, knowing that they have um, requirements about how much capital they, they need to return. So, and we created the Global Impact Investors Network, the first place where all like-minded investors could really come together and learn from one another and continue to accelerate progress. And, you know, reading the GIN reports, the, you know, the amount of assets under management in impact investing has gone from the billions to over a trillion now. Way more than a trillion. They're, they're focusing in the GIN reports on that part, which is the really tightest operational definition of impact investing, where the fund itself identifies itself as an impact fund. But if you look at the broader assets under management, um, the assessments that Bloomberg and others have made is that there's about $35 trillion of assets under management globally that broadly defined are either ESG or impact investments. It has grown exponentially, which was our hope. Yes, and we very much, when I was investigating whether you could do impact investing in public markets, it was very much taking the, the notion of making impact the investment case, you know, so you had to, because if you think about it, tackling underserved environmental needs or underserved social needs 
is about a you know an escalator for future growth. So you know you can see doing good as actually a growth model and contributing you know positively to society and to the environment. No question. And we found interestingly that the asset owners themselves became part of the drumbeat for these kinds of investments. And it was interesting in the early days to talk to many of the pension fund heads who said, after all, the reason for us having a pension fund is that we are concerned about the health and well-being of future generations in our country. How can we make investments that may hurt that or not at least have the capacity to do both? And so they started pushing the money managers to develop new kinds of products in both the public and private markets and in all asset classes. The exciting thing that we saw when we did um, the book money, Making Money Moral, which was about 2020, was that impact investing and ESG investing is now in every asset class from cash to fixed income to REITs to public and private equities. It's really quite extraordinary how the creativity and the innovation uh, has really evolved in ways that has allowed that to happen. Yes, and despite some of the sort of anti-ESG backlash, anti-sustainable investing uh, backlash, you know, it's almost become politicized. It, it does feel as if you, you're not going to be able to put it back in the box. These concepts are out there. As you said, trustees, you know, I sit on a, uh, as a trustee on a pension fund, and we talk about social exclusion, we talk about DEI, we talk about climate change, we talk about all these, these opportunities, we talk about impact investing. It has now just become the norm to discuss this 10 years ago, 20 years ago, never would have had those conversations at all. So, you know, it does show the influence is far more diffuse and it uh, becomes much more part, a holistic assessment of the opportunities out there. But I, I think just... that's right. I would just say that the opening sort of salvo, I think, with those who are resistant is the prediction that you can no longer outrun risk that given climate change, given airborne diseases that lead to pandemics, given social unrest everywhere, for a company or an asset manager to really believe that they are impervious in their investment returns to those categories of events no longer seems tenable. So even if you're not a proactive impact investor, Everybody is thinking about their fiduciary responsibility, and this broadens the opportunity to really fulfill that goal. Well, the experience of COVID brought that home vividly to us. And it was interesting as well that the launch of the phrase impact investing was 2007. There was a, quite a significant event in the financial markets a year later. So you said outrunning Friedmanism. Well, Friedmanism yeah, yeah, paid the price uh, one, one year later in many ways. And it has got us, I think, thinking about the economic models that, yeah, that you know, lie behind our markets. I do think that's right. I think the challenge to the narrow view of shareholder only um, is no longer tenable. It's not just um, we see in the U.S., and as you know, I was on the Citigroup board during that chaotic period in 2008 and 9, um, so I saw it up close and personal. Um, but 
it's no longer shareholders at an annual meeting sort of wagging their fingers. This is a, a drumbeat which companies can no longer really um, escape. And I do think 2008 showed us that we don't have a very resilient economic capital system globally. And that shocks in one place, you know, we used to think only about supply chain shocks in one part of the world, influencing other parts of the world. But economic shocks to one region have reverberations, and we've seen that over and over and over again since 2008. And this allows, it's, it's a lower variability category. And although there are politics in many countries around ESG, um, and certainly in my country, in the U.S., they're very significant, I think the, when the rubber hits the road and you look at the returns with the comparable benchmark asset class, so how are they doing in public market funds compared to competitors, um, they are most typically in the top half and quite often in the top quartile. So they're returning market returns as well as doing good. Yeah, well, often when I talk about sustainability, and I talk about economic resilience and, and linking it to business resilience, financial stability, as you know, these are major factors. It's always about integrating it into the decision-making, the good governance of a company is Absolutely. about the good enactment of corporate strategy for producing long-term shareholder returns. But if you're not managing systemic environmental and social risks, you're threatening those long-term shareholder returns. So it, it does come down to economics at the end of the day. But that's, that's what we want. That's why I said it's not concessionary capital. It's not patient capital. Philanthropy still does that. It's not that we have gotten out of that business, but we're trying to work within the existing capital markets framework, which is financial returns really matter. And we understand that. And so we're looking at those products that can do both um, and that no longer have to be either or. You know, you mentioned resilience. I wrote an op-ed and also the epilogue to my book arguing that it really should be ESGR because resilience ought to be into the investment mindset. Um, when investor is deciding to um, uh, invest in a company or not, and when the companies are being run with regard to how they're maintaining uh, their productivity and making sure that they're ready for the next shock or stress, which is surely just around the corner and often is unpredictable. Yes, it's a, it's a great concept, resilience, because you know if you you are a board member, <laughs> many of uh, many boards, um, and you know I, I I am as well, and it is something that I always think about is about that resilience to the unknown. The world is a very uncertain place. And that's one of the bits of hubris, I think, of the investment community sometimes, that it believes it's got a handle on all the risks that are coming. We never do. And it's how we actually handle that. And that's why it should be part of strategy. You know, so I think governance and resilience go hand in hand, and they should then lead to better environmental and social performance over time. And we're hearing that discussion much more in the corporate boardroom. And... 
after COVID, I think the resilience of a company's supply chain started to increase. And obviously, we had all those supply chain risks. But that's only one of the elements that needs to be protected in a kind of resilience framework. Obviously, supply chain matters. But if you're choosing to locate or invest in a company, you ought to be looking at what happens if there's a flood? Can the employees get to work? What does the local transit system look like, et cetera, et cetera? And many of those things are what have kept companies down. Um, FedEx was lost a billion dollars after one of the major Japanese tsunamis because their trucks couldn't get out. So it wasn't that their actual facility was taken down, but their access routes to do what they do was completely compromised. You need to understand that before you invest. Yes, the Fukushima earthquake shut global supply chains right. for the auto industry. You might have manufactured a car in Sunderland, but if the components came from Japan, Absolutely. you couldn't finish the car. So, Absolutely. so it is something that we, I think we're increasingly learning. We're seeing it from extreme weather events, pandemics, invasions, right. war. So, you know, this is, you know, as you say, it's a concept that comes naturally to boardrooms. But I'd like to go back a little bit to 2007 again. And you know, what were the sort of initial big barriers to adoption? I think it, was, it wasn't just my, my side of the fence, the investment world. Also, I think philanthropy were a little uh, skeptical initially. Well, I think there were two things. One was philanthropy was skeptical. Um, because they felt our role, my, my philanthropic colleagues, and, and there were notable exceptions. The Calvert Foundation had been doing this almost with their whole endowment for the prior number of years. Um, but with those few notable exceptions, many foundation boards really felt that they ought to make as much money as possible and then use that spin on the endowment return to do good. So even they were sort of keeping in two buckets how they make their money for philanthropy and then how they spend that money as a philanthropy. And so we had to really help to change that mindset um, in a very significant way, again, often in the boardroom of the philanthropy and then with philanthropies itself. I think the second rate limiting factor, and this may be surprising, is we saw the money, the supply side, might actually be more ready than the demand side. Were there really enough companies or funds that could actually take this kind of capital and um, provide the returns that were the benchmark returns so that they wouldn't be in the bottom quartile. Because if we want to build a field, we really have to show and, and measure extensively um, that it was another productive asset class. We believed initially that it would be a single asset class. Um, we wrote a research report with J.P. Morgan in um, 2007 with their team in which we argued this is a great new asset class everybody should look at. And of course, 15 years later, as I said, it's in every asset class. And the innovation um, has been just extraordinary and really heartening. It has created the most interesting kinds of ideas and interesting kinds of investment categories that I think uh, no one could have imagined. 
and it's still evolving, isn't mm -hmm. it? You know, that's one of the, the beauties, you know, for me as a, a, a public market investor. It's, uh, it's just a different way of shining the light on the same problem, of identifying those winning business models that actually are winning because they're having a positive impact. If, you know, as I said, addressing underserved social or environmental needs. But it's not just in public equities. It's in it's in credit. It's right. in private markets. It's the private uh, uh, social entrepreneurs that sometimes take my breath away. They're, they're not at the big billions or trillions. They're in the tens or hundreds of millions. But boy, do they do some good with this thinking, whether it be in social housing as a firm called Sask in the UK mm -hmm. or Sumerian who en enable um, uh, social entrepreneurs to scale up or abundance that use crowdfunding to, for local communities. There's a lot of innovation that's away from the normal big boys in the capital markets with uh, the, you know, the big bucks. And, and the, for me, that was always the most exciting part of impact investing. Well, we funded early Social Finance UK, and they're credited um, with developing the social impact bond. Um, we did an initial experiment at Peterborough Prison um, where we um, sold the bond and the return rate based on the actuarial data of what the um, NGO intervention could do to reduce juvenile recidivism. And the payer was the UK government because they said, we are spending a fortune of money on recidivism, and now we see your data. You're just a relatively small NGO, but you've produced these remarkable data over and over and over again. What if we pay you to do it, and we pay the investors a fixed income rate of return based on the success rate of reducing juvenile recidivism below what the UK government has done over the last 10 years? And that exploded a new kind of field in impact bonds, now climate bonds, green bonds, uh, blue bonds for ocean protection, social bonds after COVID. Um, and it all came from that tiny sort of philanthropic seed and a great um, uh, innovative team at social finance uh, and a terrific NGO with great data. And it's sort of, you know, a lot of these enterprises are about lived experience. I, I can remember being told about uh, by Sumerian partners that um, one of the projects they were funding was a, a chain of cafes run by a woman who was an ex-offender and she employed ex-female offenders. And, you know, the social benefits for that, as well as the economic benefits, are great. And it's just such a, a great business model, and helping her scale up was what they were providing. So, that, you know, the, these innovation comes in lots of different forms. It's not just technology. We tend to think of it all comes from Silicon Valley, but there's a lot of different types of innovation out there. And social entrepreneurs and environmental entrepreneurs are very innovative. In my last couple of years at Rockefeller, we created another phil philanthropic fund called Zero Gap. And Rockefeller is still continuing that. And what we do is give between 250000 U.S. dollars and 500000 where entrepreneurs have ideas about how to fix market failures and produce social or environmental returns. 
and we have sourced the globe for those innovative ideas and about 50% work out. That's what philanthropic capital is for. And then we bring in investors when they do work out to take them to the next level of scale. So again, this kind of blending of capital, philanthropic capital, family offices, larger investors such as yourself, um, all of that has really come in, not together, but at different phases of the market evolution. And we love the idea that they all are being used differently. You know, we tend to think about mezzanine financing. This is kind of a new way of thinking about those mezzanines and building that structure. In our preamble, we talked about the difference between charity and philanthropy, and you had a, a lovely anecdote going back to the early days of uh, Rockefeller. I just wondered if you could share that exchange of letters between Rockefeller and Carnegie. Uh, I was president uh, leading up to 2013, which was to be Rockefeller's uh, centennial celebration. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to go back to our archives, which are very rich, and look at the exchange between Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller as they were both trying to think about what is this new thing called philanthropy that we're trying to do and how is it different from charity? And Rockefeller wrote this beautiful letter to Carnegie in which he says, I will tithe all my life. I've tithed since I was a very young man. But that is putting bandages on weeping wounds. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that it doesn't solve the problem. It addresses the problem after it's occurred. What I want philanthropy to be is something that goes back to the root causes and solves those issues before they become problems. And it was so insightful, and it's really hard to do, but it is absolutely right. And he introduced the term with his uh, team of scientific philanthropy. Let's develop a hypothesis, let's invest in something, but let's keep testing and learning and evolving. And often, when we develop grant programs, we, the philanthropies, don't test and evolve with our grantees. We give them the money and then we assess them at the end. And that, But Rockefeller's view would, even at the early days, this is a partnership, there are partners. Yes, there are grantees, but there are partners. And we need to learn together and keep developing those learnings so that we can really address root causes. What a beautiful bit of English, putting bandages on weeping wounds. <laughs> Uh, that's right. People were very lyrical in the yes, past. Yes, <laughs> he was, especially in writing. <laughs> but you mentioned their partnership, you, and that's a great opportunity you now to leap forward and think about the future. I know when you and I met first, we had the pleasure of talking at the New York State Insurance Fund's Symposium on Climate Change, one of the big systemic issues facing the planet at the moment. But you, you had a, uh, an extra angle. You were looking at it. Uh, its impact on health as well, and I know that's a big focus for you. And um, you know, one of my anecdotes is that um, you know I'm an asthmatic. You can probably hear me rattling a bit today. <laughs> I can remember uh, talking to somebody from the NHS and saying, "Yes, my inhaler uh, was about four percent of the emissions of the National Health Service." 
in the UK. And uh, I, my doctor gave me a new one recently, which is a, an old-fashioned pump, which reduces those emissions. So even a sector like healthcare, which we don't think of as a big emitter, can play a role in climate change. We don't. And the impact of climate change on human health is very significant. And I don't think the general public really recognizes how significant it is. We often talk about saving the planet for our grandchildren. And while that's a very lofty and, and noble idea indeed, if we don't save the planet for ourselves right now, the impact on individual and public health is massive. As you said, however, the healthcare system itself is a significant emitter. I don't know the data in the UK, but in the US, it's the fourth largest emitter after energy transit and food production. If you ask the general public, no one would ever know that. And so one of the things that we're working on is a joint initiative um, that in the U.S. and working a bit with the national health system as well in their own initiative, which uh, Prince Charles has started when he was Prince Charles, um, is to decarbonize the healthcare sector. If you just think about every time a plastic glove gets ripped off everywhere around health delivery. So this is an effort to bring together the manufacturers um, of healthcare services and products, the large health insurers, um, the large health systems, academics, and practitioners. And what we've allowed them to do, asked them to do, is really co-create interventions that would lead to true decarbonization in um, supply chain and delivery, in services, in um, how they actually access the public, and a number of other places. And they are hard at work at the moment. And again, we hope that this will spread globally because it's a very, very significant. And we kind of believe physician heal thyself. So before we continue to wag our fingers, which we should do at the oil and gas companies, um, we need to look at the healthcare system really closely and, and address that. I was fortunate a few years back to chair an event in Glasgow um, about Scotland's initiatives on decarbonising. And I thought one of the most inspiring talks was from the chief financial officer of the NHS Scotland, who had already made good progress on the easy bits of decarbonising. But she said the trick when she was talking about the plan for 2030 was not to frame it in showing distressing images of polar bears or melting ice caps, but talk about the economic, the financial benefits through the health benefits to people in cities like Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, and to show that there was a tangible payback from decarbonizing. And it was just really, you know, it was very inspiring the way she, she, she put it forward. As you know, I've talked about their uh, work as carbon emissions, but the illnesses that they are seeing, many of them are caused by climate change. You mentioned asthma, wildfires are producing unbelievable airborne, um, uh, even among non-asthmatic airborne episodes, and many cardiovascular disease is compromised by certain kinds of climate change. If we look at the large public health, 
20,000 people just died in Libya in a flood. Now, we can talk about the faulty infrastructure, but the catalytic event was flooding. And we see that increasingly. And those who didn't die in the flood flooded the healthcare system. So, and that's true globally. And so we have to address climate change as a mechanism to continue to focus on human health and well-being. And by the way, well-being includes mental health. You know, the assessment of young people and their mental health fears about climate change is often not talked about, but it is extremely significant. And so all of these things are starting to come together in ways that we believe actually is a vector in to galvanizing new public support and new public attention because that link hasn't been widely understood or talked about before. And we're hoping with massively effective communication, you know, not by showing all the terrible things, but by talking about what you can do for yourself and your family now, um, will really be another way to galvanize more public support and depoliticize some of the issues that still remain around climate change. Yes, I was, that was going to be my next question. You said talking about depoliticizing <laughs> it. You know, we have this, you know, some different political perspectives on climate change and the economic action that's needed, often framed, as we've seen in the UK in, in the last 24 hours, that we can't afford to tackle climate change. What do you say to politicians who think that we can't afford to tackle climate change quite yet? Well, another piece of the initiative that I'm leading on the intersection of climate change and human health is a work stream that's working with leading global economists to really try to answer that question. How could we transform the economic models in the other three high sectors, energy, transit, and food production, food growth, agriculture, and the like, in ways that the transformation could become a financial opportunity rather than a financial cost. And interestingly, many leading economists said, I was never challenged to think of it this way. I'm always doing what government and policymakers are doing, which is what is the cost of this transition? And there's no question that there's a cost. But how do you then, and it almost gets back to the impact investing, discussion. How do you now, if you're trying to really bring about systemic change, think about the opportunities for true economic growth for a country, for a company, for a fund that could be built in there as this transition is going on? Politicians don't take a very long-term view, and that's why we believe engaging the private sector in that enterprise to really understand that it may not be in your first five-year strategic plan, but it could easily be in the next five-year strategic plan, and what are the pathways that you could get there um, in as low a cost, there are costs, um, way, and you as a government could do that. You and I talked about resilience. As part of our centennial, we launched an effort called 100 Resilient Cities Around the World. And we worked with cities, large and small. London was one of our cities, New York, um, but also small cities 
to really develop an understanding of what their risks were from climate, from other stresses, but climate was, of course, one of them, develop a strategy, which we paid for. We paid for each of them to have a chief resilience officer, and they started investing in resilience projects. Was there resistance governmentally? Yes, they felt that's a longer, what do you mean? It's kind of a longer term. Yes, the risks are out there, but I have to deal with trash removal tomorrow or snow removal next week or whatever, whatever. Um, but we had 1,100 cities apply, so 1,100 mayors understood this, maybe better than national governments because they have to deliver every day. And that work, which has been going on now for almost 10 years, has been transformational for many of those cities. So you have to invest in capacity if you want to protect the future. You just have to. I always think that if we could reframe to some of our language, that instead of talking about the cost of education, the cost of healthcare provision, we talk about the investment in healthcare, the investment in education, because there are distinct paybacks. And sometimes it is just reframing it in a way that actually looks at the positives the, that come out of it rather than just taking that rather short-term perspective of this is a cost that we bear today. Because if you're not spending the money today, if you're not investing in the health and well-being and the education of your populace, you're going to get left behind and you're going to be storing up problems and costs in the future. And I think that's a very critical point, and that's why, as I said earlier, we're going to invest a lot of time and money in the communications part of this, because language matters. How you frame things matters. We certainly see that politically, but it's also true in galvanizing public support and public trust in thinking about how to accomplish this. And that's a critical part that often gets overlooked. And what's next for impact investing? What's the, the next 10 years hold in store, do you think? What, what are, what's the big, the, yeah, the big change that we're going to see? I think this is the period in which we're going to finally narrow the kinds of the groups of metrics that are currently being applied, which does lead to confusion and often leads to accusations of greenwashing and has been part of the problem, I think, in broad, broader acceptance of both ESG and impact investing. There are many collaborative efforts um, in investor communities, in business communities, among governments, um, to really come up with a few very common frameworks and analytic tools that they all will use. So I think that will immediately um, accelerate uh, further the growth of the field. I think a second thing is I'm seeing momentum for moving solely from impact measurement to impact management. So we we are seeing less... I'm the passive investor, and I'm going to then assess at the end of each year or at the end of my fund what your financial return was, what your social or environmental return was, to again, almost as I described our work with our grantees as partners, that you want to maximize the impact that 
those you invest in can be having. And so there's new tools for impact management, and I think asset managers, um, not just in the private markets, but even in the public markets, are going to take a more active role in that as those tools start to roll out. Um, and then I think the field hopefully will continue to grow the longer um, the field has, the, these various fields have been in existence, of course, the greater the evidence base, and then the data will speak for themselves, and um, one will decide to make those investments based on all of one's fiduciary and financial and whatever, as well as social uh, goals. And I think a lot of it is mindset. It's about the mindset of the organization to recognize that we all have an impact, and generally, it's a negative impact. So how do we think about mitigating those negative consequences of all human existence on, on the planet? And you can you can fit it into your sense of corporate purpose. So, you know, we're owned by a company in Australia and what we have our our impact fund sits under our Regnan brand. Now Regnan is a form of eucalyptus tree, the tallest flowering tree in the world, one of the most water retentive. And my colleagues in Australia are working with other uh, partners out there to preserve a Regnan forest northwest of mm. um, Melbourne. And, you know, it's not about you know, the just, you know, the it's not about financial return. It's about that sense of place based in, uh, investing, making the place in which your clients and which your colleagues and yourself dwell a better world and it's the most wonderful forest we've got a beautiful video on it it's very inspiring to see but it really does it is about how you think about the problem and uh, you, you meant mentioned definitions and my simple definition is always esgs an input right. so a series of complex nuanced inputs that vary across country regions industry and time importantly sustainable is the outcome that we're trying to achieve, sustainable financial returns from managing our environmental and social uh, consequences. And then, you know, and then impact is about the consequences. Absolutely. It's about mitigating and finding solutions to those negative challenges to the environment and society. And if you do it as input-output consequences, I think it becomes a reasonably logical construct and gives a yeah, not a bad definition for No, that's a great definition, and it's a wonderful way of framing. I think we want actions that are productive within planetary boundaries. And we haven't yet in this conversation talked about biodiversity and the sort of elements that undergird the environment and then undergird human and animal mm. health. Um, but we have tended to, we, the world, have tended to treat biodiversity as a given. So water is a free good, you know, air is a free good, et cetera, et cetera. But we are destroying many of those elements knowingly and unknowingly. And so the whole notion of sort of within planetary boundaries, I think is also a very critical one as one thinks about the future. Well, that was a very timely comment for the recent launch of the Task Force for Nature-Based Financial Disclosure. Um, one of my colleagues you know, wrote a very good paper on bioculture, which makes that point is that you can't see nature as divisible from human activity. Right. We are part of nature. We are animals too, but we have a, our 
socioeconomic culture is interwoven with nature and biodiversity and we have to see it as a more as a part of a whole system rather than seeing it as a separate system so it's a really fascinating area and a, if you think climate change is complicated, then, you know, it's... <laughs> it is. We, at our centennial look back, Rockefeller helped to create and fund the field of public health in the 1900s. And um, we then asked ourselves, you know, as we were in our hundredth year, what would public health look like in the future? And the argument among those who were there is that it should transform to planetary health because that is the challenge of the future, but it really shows how all of these things really are interwoven and that impact on one has either a direct or certainly an indirect impact on all of the others. Judith, it's been a fascinating discussion. One last question before we wrap up. And look, I ask this of all our guests, and sorry for the stock market uh, <laughs> yeah, language. Bull and bear, we call it. So what's one thing that you're optimistic about and one thing that you're pessimistic about as you look forward? I, I've just come from the opening of the UN Assembly and Climate Week in New York, and almost a million young people marched on Sunday to argue for taking better care of our climate and the impact on them that we, the adults, were really having so unfairly and so unthinkingly. And I think I am seeing the youth rise up in ways that I haven't seen before in as global a movement and as significantly. And I, I'm thrilled. I, I'm, it's awful that it has taken this a crisis to do that. But I do think, and they're very receptive to the health issue as well. Um, what worries me, and I'm sure many of your um, guests will talk about this, but for all of the amazingly good ways that AI will be transformational and change every possible field, I am terrified by the misuse of AI. Um, and it particularly as it meets cyber risk. And I do think that threats to our energy systems, our water, our health systems are very significant and potentially way more imminent than we're prepared for. Judith, thank you very much for your time. We could have talked for hours. It's been a huge ple pleasure. And uh, thank you for inspiring me over all these years and thank you to our listeners today for listening organizing the future is available on spotify amazon and apple podcasts please subscribe to be sure to catch every episode if you would like to learn more about investment opportunities at joe hambro capital management or at regnan please do contact your representative Details about us, about our funds and our approach to investing are on our website. Just search for Joe Hambro in your favorite browser.